Hi Soma, our series is God and Sex. This is talk two. Thank you for the comments and questions from last week. I did make a slip up last week. I said Jesus says the only reason for divorce is sexual immorality. I meant to say the only reason Jesus gives for divorce is sexual immorality. Uh, there are other reasons given in the Old Testament, namely abandonment and abuse. It's easy for me to make these slip-ups, so great that you're asking questions and that the conversation is continuing. Today I want to lay out Jesus' vision for sexual flourishing, and I'll cover big theological themes rather than going through a text of Scripture. Jesus' vision is about both the beauty and the power of human sexuality, and he offers us discipleship in this area, a vision for sexual formation. How can we be formed into the image of Jesus? The way of Jesus doesn't just stipulate morality. Here's what you should do. It's really asking, how can we become like Jesus and therefore flourish in our sexuality? Well, I want to start with a passage. Paul is trying to pastor a community in 1 Thessalonians 4. And this is what he says about sexual formation. It is God's will that you should be sanctified, that you should avoid sexual immorality, that each of you should learn to control your own body in a way that is holy and honourable, not in passionate lust like the pagans who do not know God, and that in this matter no one should wrong or take advantage of a brother or sister. The Lord will punish all those who commit such sins, as we told you and warned you before. For God did not call us to be impure, but to live a holy life. Therefore, anyone who rejects this instruction does not reject a human being, but God, the very God who gives you his Holy Spirit. Now, this is a rich text that we could spend a month on, but I want you to see just two things primarily. Sexual foundation is about learning control, and it's about submitting to the Holy Spirit. There's a part we do, learning to control our desires and our bodies, and as we do that, the Spirit leads and empowers and guides us. And all the warnings in the Bible around sex are designed around the idea that sex is good, and it's seeking to protect something that is both powerful and fragile. It's not designed to repress freedom. So how do we learn to control ourselves and submit to the Spirit? Well, part of this is having a vision of Christian sexuality, a vision that Jesus gives us. Christian sexuality is based on four pillars, and these are all foundational. Number one is that sex is pointing to a greater reality, as we saw last week. It's a signpost to a greater story of intimacy and union with God. Philip Yancey in Rumours of Another World says, the very word sex comes from a Latin verb that means to cut off or sever. And sexual impulses drive us to unite, to restore somehow the union that has been severed. Freud diagnosed the deep pain within as a longing for union with the parent. Jung diagnosed a longing for union with the opposite sex. The Christian sees a deeper longing for union with the God who created us. That's why Dostoevsky said every man who is knocking on the door of a brothel is actually looking for God. His ache is to be known and to be intimate. Yancey continues, Sexual intimacy is a sacred pointer to something even greater, something truly out of this world. In one sense, we are never more godlike than in the act of sex. We make ourselves vulnerable, we risk, we give and receive in a simultaneous act. We feel a primordial delight entering into the other in communion. Quite literally, we make one flesh out of two different persons, experiencing for a brief time a unity like no other. Two independent beings open their inmost selves and experience not a loss, but a gain. In some way, a profound mystery that even Paul dared not explore. This must, most human act reveals something of the nature of reality, God's reality, 
in his relations with creation and perhaps even with, within the Trinity itself. See, this is the gospel. It is the true and greatest story of a God who loves us, has chosen us, has rescued us, become naked and vulnerable on our behalf and who gives himself to us unconditionally. And ultimately, what every human being aches for is to be fully vulnerable, physically, mentally, spiritually, emotionally, in front of another human being, and to be fully received without rejection. And that's what we have in Jesus. He sees us at our worst, our shame, our guilt, our sin, and yet he doesn't condemn us. He rises up and he takes on those who condemn us, and he welcomes us in by his grace. That's the relationship every human being aches for. So first, sex is a signpost to the true true and greater story of God and his love for us. The second thing it does is it gives us a vision of holistic integration. Sex isn't just the bonding of two bodies, it's the bonding of two lives. When you remove a holistic vision of sexuality as a heart-soul-mind-whole-life union, you're left with what the French sociologist Jacques Ellul calls an obsession with technique. The point of sex is more than just a physical act. It's the bonding of two lives, uniting your finances, uniting your future, uniting your dreams, uniting your emotions. When we get rid of all of that and say it's just a physical act, it's just my body uniting, then everything comes down to technique. That's why porn is almost always explicit close-up. It's always technique. It's obsessed with the physical act And the stories are pathetic. (laughs) There's no point to the stories. It's just technique. That's why so many kids, when they've watched porn and get involved in sexuality, are so disillusioned because the technique is different than their ability. The movie A Beautiful Mind tells the story of a socially inept but brilliant man named John Nash. And he's in a bar and he goes up to a woman at the bar. All of his friends have real game, but he doesn't. And he goes up to a woman and he says this, Look, I don't have the words to say, whatever it is that is necessary to get you into bed. So can we pretend that I've said those things and skip to the part where we exchange bodily fluids? At which point she slaps him across the face because we know you can't reduce sex and sexual union to mere physical technique. Sex is meant to be a whole life union, a holistic integration. Sex is a physical representation of everything else that is taking place in a marriage. Otherwise, all the sex we have will make us just lonelier rather than happier. The third thing is that our Christian sexuality is tied to our transformation. Now, I know there's a point of tension here. Christianity actually preaches a chaste tension. We believe in saying no, uh, resisting or pushing back rather than just giving in to our natural desires actually has the capacity to produce deep spiritual growth and profound character transformation. And it can repress the worst in us and release the best in us because it points us towards love. It's about self-control, self-respect, learning to think of other people. Now, I know it can be tempting when you're looking out at the world and others seem to be having all this incredible sex and you think, gosh, I wish I could let myself go like that. But the tension when we don't give in to that is actually forming our character. 
while the giving into inappropriate pleasure is actually deforming our character. It's chasing our instincts rather than training our instincts. And one of these pathways leads to sacrificial love and the other doesn't. It's like raising children. The parents that drive you crazy are parents who give their kids everything they want all the time and make their two-year-old toddlers into mini-gods. And you just want to say to them, don't you realise the damage you're doing to your child? And we all know that giving a child whatever they want all of the time is not helpful for the child in real life. Uh, Why is it then that when we become adults and we're thinking about sexuality, that we think doing whatever we want and giving in to every desire we have is going to be good for us? It's not. We're told to have self-control, self-respect, love for others. And we're called to reorientate this crazy force of desire in our hearts towards other person-centred, sacrificial care. That's The New Testament uses the word agape, agape love, to describe that kind of self-sacrificial, self-giving love. Agape love is to manifest itself sexually as agape sexuality. And that's completely different than an out-of-control, raging eros. C.S. Lewis said, love wants a particular person. Lust will take anybody, anybody. And so for us as Christians, sex within the framework of marriage, as taught in the scriptures, is a tool for spiritual transformation uh, to deal with these out-of-control forces and make us into the image of God as we learn to love sacrificially. Agape love is Christ-like love, and it's the secret to human flourishing. The fourth thing in Christian sexuality is channeling sexual desire in life-giving ways. See, if you watch pornography, and both men and women watch pornography, um, it's not just a man issue anymore, it's a human issue. I don't think I have to outline the harmful effects of pornography, what does it what it does to the brain and how destructive it is. But I want us to hear this. The goal of life is not to stop watching porn and to stop sleeping around and to stop having sexual desires. That's not really the point. It's how do we channel sexual desire in a healthy way? Uh, See, when a small child is learning how to eat at the dinner table, it's beautiful. She's learning to feed herself. And she grabs the food, she eats a bit, then throws it and then scrapes it up and then feeds it to the dog. And the dog is like, yes, yes, this is fantastic. Um, What we don't say to that child as parents is, no, bad girl, terrible, you are a bad person. You know, no parent would do that. No, we we tell her, let's let's channel that energy in a different direction (laughs) because it's all about her energy, isn't it? Um, This beautiful energy that she's experiencing as she eats her food and our job as a parent uh, is to channel that energy in life-giving ways of our child in ways that result in the food actually going into her body and bringing nourishment Um, we're trying to channel it in the right way we you know we don't throw food at guests you know that's not how we channel our energy is what we're trying to teach so it's not just stop 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 it you're a bad person Likewise, the goal in sexuality is to to not just stop lusting uh, and stop doing this and stop looking at porn and to stop whatever. No, it's channeling those impulses and those desires in life-giving ways. That's the point. How do we channel this fire that is this sex drive 
in life-giving ways because repressing sexual desire is not helpful to us. We need to learn to channel it. Now, to be clear, having a sexuality is not just having sex. This is important because you might be thinking, how do I channel pornography in ways that are glorifying to God? Is there a Christian porn that I can look at? No, there is not. Are there um, redeemed ways I I can have of having sex outside of marriage? No, there are not. Uh, No, that's not what I'm saying. What I mean by channeling our sexuality, well, Ronald Rollheiser defines Christian sexuality in his book, Holy Longing. I highly recommend this book. He says, sexuality is a beautiful, good, extremely powerful, sacred energy given us by God and experienced in every cell of our being as an irrepressible urge to overcome our incompleteness, to move us towards unity and consummation with that which is beyond us, ultimately God. It is also the pulse to celebrate, to give and receive delight, to find our way back to the Garden of Eden where we are naked and shameless. Ultimately, though, all these hungers in their full maturity culminate in one thing, to make us co-creators with God, mothers and fathers, artisans and creators, big brothers and big sisters, nurses and healers, teachers and consolers, farmers and producers, administrators and community builders, co-responsible with God for the planet, standing with God and smiling at the blessing in the world. See, marriage is about procreation. Well, our marriage to God is something that leads to co-creation with him, the out flowing of our union with God and becoming one with him and being wrapped up in him is that his life flows through us so that we bring blessing to the world in his power and strength by his spirit through the resurrection power of Jesus Christ. You know, uh, and, and that's generativity, we could call it, generating new life through us into the world, through our union with God. That's what sexuality is really ultimately about. What does this look like? Well, a pastor who is a wonderful inspiration to me couldn't have kids for a very long time. For 15 years, he and his wife couldn't have a child. And he says, there came a point in our journey where we saw our generativity as we're parents to many people in our church. And their generativity was channeled that way. And he says, to be honest, we never needed a child to be fully human. And we don't even need marriage to be fully human. He says, I know church planners and pastors and ministers and counsellors and teachers and sisters and nurses and healers who aren't married. What we need in our sexuality is generativity, to channel our sexual fire in ways that generate life, that truly give life. Now, given this definition... Sexuality in its mature bloom doesn't necessarily look like love scenes. What does sexuality in its mature bloom look like? Well, Rollheiser says, when you see a young mother so beaming with delight at her own child that for that moment all selfishness within her has given way to sheer joy of seeing her child happy, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see an artist 
after long frustration, look with such satisfaction on a work she has just completed that everything else for the moment is blotted out. You are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see a young man, cold and wet, but happy to have been of service, standing on a dock where he has carried the unconscious body of a child he has just saved from drowning, you are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. When you see any person, man, woman or child, who in a moment of service, affection, love, friendship, creativity, joy or compassion, is for that moment so caught up in what is beyond him or her, that for that instant his or her separateness from others is overcome. You are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. And when you see God, having just created the earth or just seen Jesus baptised in the Jordan River, Look down on what has just happened and say, it is good, in you I take delight. You are seeing sexuality in its mature bloom. And Rollheiser says, sexuality is not simply about finding a lover or even finding a friend. It's about overcoming separateness by giving life and blessing it. Thus, in its maturity, sexuality is about giving oneself over to community, friendship, family, service, creativity, humour, delight and martyrdom so that with God we can help bring life into the world. By the way, this is the reason we are Christians. As a Christian, we're called to carry on the generativity of the resurrection, Jesus' resurrection life flowing through us to give life to others. So learning to control ourselves isn't just so that we can say no to pornography or lust. It's so that we can become generative. To channel our sexuality in ways that are giving life to others. I love it. But why is this so difficult? You might be having a moment right now of, yes, this is what life is about. I see it. I want to be part of that. I want to stop looking at pornography and be involved in what you're talking about. And yet it's so difficult. Why is sex and sexuality so crazy hard to figure out? Well, this is a struggle for every single one of us. And the main reason for this struggle that we have in our time, in our day and age, is that we've become so, um, so f- kind of focused on the here and now of our lives that we place the full weight of our identity on ordinary life on our material here and now existence, we place all the weight of our identity on that and on whether I'm single or married or divorced or my sexual orientation or my job and whether I've travelled and Instagrammed about it. You know, The weight of our identity is so placed just on the here and now that it becomes hard for us to think of the bigger picture and life hereafter. See, celibacy to Jesus is a high and beautiful call. And in 1 Corinthians 7 verse 34, Paul says marriage is good, but the advantage of being single is that we can devote ourselves more fully to Christ and his kingdom. And Jesus says something very similar in Matthew 19 verse 12. Some people live a life as if they were eunuchs in order to put more into the kingdom of God. That's how they're channeling their sexuality into kingdom things and into eternity. They have this bigger perspective of life. 
You see, we have so much romanticism in our culture and we place so much emphasis on sexuality being all about just making love or just romantic stuff like, you know, having a night with a pizza and watching Netflix together, which is great, but we boil everything down to those kinds of things. So much so that we're not really thinking of the next life. We're not really thinking of the kingdom of God. As it says in Alcoholics Anonymous, so that I may be reasonably happy in this life, but exceedingly happy in the life to come. Who thinks like that? Who thinks, as long as I'm reasonably happy in this life, I'm cool, because I know I'll be exceedingly happy in the life to come. Who thinks like that on a day-to-day basis? I just want to be reasonably happy now and I'll be happy. You know, that's cool. Because I know I'll be exceedingly happy in the life to come. So that's channeling our sexuality, not just a generativity in this life, but with that kingdom of God in the life to come and the result of our generativity in this life. And we will see that and be exceedingly happy. So that's a way of channeling our sexuality. We're not to place all the weight of our life here. (laughs) Um, And you might have a vision of, yeah, I want to do all those things, Dave. I'd love to have a life of great generativity, intimacy with God that leads to so much fruitfulness. And yet, all I'm thinking about is the here and now. And so it keeps breaking down. For me, I watch my iPhone too much, you know, and it's not just that I'm just thinking about this life, it's that I'm just thinking about this little screen. (laughs) Wouldn't it be great if there were apps that popped up saying on the the iPhone, are you becoming like Christ? Are you channeling your sexual energy towards eternity? All right, so this is Jesus' compelling vision for human sexuality. (laughs) A signpost to a greater story, a holistic integration, an opportunity for transformation as we exercise self-control in the power of the Spirit and learn to love like Jesus. And, fourthly, not repressing sexual desire, but channeling sexual desire in life-giving ways with eternity in mind. There it is. There's Jesus' vision for sexual flourishing. And it all starts with the first one. It all points back to the great story that we are part of, of a God who loves us, who redeems us, who has chosen us, who's become naked naked and vulnerable on our behalf and has given himself vulnerably and unconditionally to us. Uh, And ultimately, whatever every human being aches for, is to be fully vulnerable spiritually, emotionally, psychologically, uh, mentally vulnerable in front of another person and be fully received and not rejected. And that's what we have with Jesus Christ. He fully accepts us. He knows our sin, our shame, our brokenness. But he fully accepts us. He doesn't condemn us. And he takes on those who condemn us. And turns them away and gives us a free space to grow and for his life to flow into our life so that we can flourish in all our humanness and all our love, in all our generativity. 
in his strength. Amen.